Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Adam Hawkins. In each episode, I present a small batch of the theory and practices behind building a high-velocity software organization. Topics include DevOps, Lean, software architecture, continuous delivery, and conversations with industry leaders. Now, let's begin today's episode. Hello again, everybody. Welcome back to Small Batches. Today, I'm talking to somebody you likely haven't heard about and is a bit different than the kind of people I typically have on the show. But I think this is a good thing. It's going to bring a different perspective to the show that we haven't really seen yet. So I want to introduce you to Marcus Sherp. I met Marcus way back, I don't know, 2012 at a conference in Roslov. It's actually a Ruby conference, and Marcus was doing a talk on testing, I believe, or code metrics, something of the sort. And we got to talking after the talk and kind of hung out through the conference, and it immediately struck me that this is a really smart guy who knows a lot more about software development than I do. And what really impressed me about Marcus was his attention to principles and metrics. Now, I wasn't really so keen on the metrics way back then, but now with my focus on DevOps and software delivery performance, these metrics, they come up again. Things like developer efficiency, time from commit to production, waste measure code quality, all of these are signals that can drive the software development process. So I thought it would be good to have Marcus on the show to discuss his principles for being a software developer. One thing I really like about Marcus is that he does, in fact, actually have principles and sticks through them. And he uses these principles to inform his daily work and to change his workflow and, if needed, even change tools to improve the metrics. So I kind of came at this from the code quality side because Marcus has created a tool called Mutant. Mutant is a mutation testing tool for Ruby. So in case you don't know, Ruby is a dynamic language. So that introduces all kinds of different uh, complexities and non-deterministic behaviors, to say it lightly. But as Marcus describes, he is a dynamic language exorcist. I think it's just a really fun description. But the point of Mutant is to take the tests, modify the AST such that there's a change in the tests, run the tests. If they succeed, then something is wrong with the tests or the code, right? So think of it this way. If you were to manipulate the test suite or, you know, change a greater than to equal or equal to less than and the test still passed, well, then the test is inaccurate and needs to change. So kind of the way that I think about it is that Mutant is a tool for testing your tests. Well, anyway, we talk about that a, a little bit, but what really connected with me, which is the idea of changing the way that we think about uh, software quality and if needed, creating tools to just change the way that we can test quality. So anyway, I have Marcus on the show today to discuss the principles and practices of being an effective software developer. So I'll give you my conversation with Marcus Sure. Marcus, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, me too. So I've already introduced you in my own words. Why don't you introduce yourself in your own words? Okay, so I'm... I have many super tech-lightly self-descriptions. Sometimes I say I'm a dynamic language exorcist. <laughs> Sometimes I say I like to work to turn software development into an engineering discipline and finding missing missing access of correctness and writing the missing tools. Sometimes I describe myself as a developer. Sometimes I describe myself as an entrepreneur because all of this is true in some form. Right. Sometimes I contract to team. Sometimes I take equity. Sometimes I do more like technology consultants. I did some infosec. So I'm really hard to put into one category. That's why one of the reasons why I want to talk to you is because you have a wide variety of experience. And one of the things I want to focus on is 
when I originally met you, it was at a conference and, you know, that was kind of when I got exposed more seriously to mutation testing. And to me, like at the time, this was like a big light bulb in my head because one, it was just totally new, which was is rare to actually find something totally new in, in tech, right? You can, you can do a survey right now. If you just ask people, have you ever heard about mutation testing? It will rank probably lowest because it's, it's still a really, really weird topic to many. Yeah, no surprise because even still, you know, like TDD and different kinds of testing still doesn't have like 100% mindshare. But um, what really excited me about mutation testing was it, it was just a whole nother way to assess the quality of the software that we're building. And uh, now, like with the focus on continuous delivery, it's all predicated on having some way to verify the correctness of your software with high confidence. And mutation testing was one way to take it to a whole nother order of magnitude. So maybe we start the conversation as what was the process and logic behind creating, well, maybe we have to actually define mutation testing a little bit. Let's start there. Yeah, let's, let's try to, to set the scene for this discussion. So it's, what's really important about is that we just define some terms. So I can use these terms to, to basically span up the, the geometric form I like to explain to people. So mm-hmm. let's start with the definition of check. So you talked about tests and uh, so on and so forth, but tests are a very specific thing in software development. So you write a test and you execute the test. And to differentiate various forms of testing, because you can also manually test, you can review, which is also a form of passing a test. So let's call it check. So everything which happens between writing a line of code and getting into production is a series of checks. Mm-hmm. There are checks in many levels. First level is typically, uh, does the parser accept this piece of garbage? You wrote? Yeah. And on a generic language, there is not more. So it's just like the parser accepts it, and then you can run it, and you can hope that it passes the check of production, because production is the ultimate check. Right. You would say you deploy it, and then your error rate spikes if you even have error tracking, which sometimes certainly doesn't exist. But let's say business does not does exist after a certain amount of time is the ultimate check. If you fail to deliver correct enough software, then you probably failed some checks before. Sometimes there are checks for validity of the business idea, but let's focus on the pure engineering checks here. So mm-hmm. engineering checks can pipe from editor to production. So as I mentioned, there is the parser level check, then there is in a typical dynamic language environment, you have like boot up code, which loads all the time. Let's, let's assume you just boot your application and you hit F5, F5 driven development. It's a form of check that we all know that we cannot exhaustively test everything by F5 driven development. Let's assume web, web development here for a second. And so then you write some automated tests. Automated tests are also a form of check. Then let's assume that your development team says, okay, so we know that tests are not super exhaustive and we could test the wrong thing. We could actually specify the wrong thing and implement it wrong. Maybe we do payouts instead or instead of charges, whatever. So let's do some reviews. Before it goes into production, it's not one developer, so it's two eyes, ten eyes, whatever the policy is. It's another check which has to be passed. And thankfully, actually, GitHub came around and also named a check, but I'm not related to that at all. It's just coincidence. Lucky. And uh, yeah. so what's interesting here is that mutation testing is a form of, let's say, a second dimension check. Mutation testing takes your code and your test as input mm-hmm. and produces a report of changed semantics which still pass the tests. Mm-hmm. Each of these reported alive mutations, which is a domain term in mutation testing, that says each of the reported automatically identifiable changes, which still pass your tests, are a call to action for the developer, the reviewer, whatever the state you decide to implement mutation testing in. You can do mutation testing pre-commit stage. You can do it on CI. Mm-hmm. You can do it in manual code review. So I've, I've seen all these things. But the call to action of each alive mutation, which is typically represented as a diff, at least in my mm-hmm. tools, is the question, why don't we use this changed code? Mm-hmm. And this changed code is typically representing a semantic reduction. We remove an argument. We remove a um, method from a chain. We on method definition, we remove a default. It's always a semantic reduction. You can always point to something which the change, the automatically generated change, which still passes your tests, does less. So the call to action is, please, developer, assume this is an expert 
developer asking you, why don't we write it that way, which does less, because the expert developer knows, knows the best thing you can do is just remove code. Wherever right. you can remove code, you're up for you're, you're in a high degree chance it's good. And the answer is, yes, you should remove the extra semantics mm -hmm. in most of the cases. But in some cases, it's actually, oh, this is very important. We will break a business invariant. Then you probably better write a test because it's so important that you do not remove it, then it's probably a missing test. And this is basically a way to generate a check based on other checks because test is a form of a check. And mm -hmm. the code itself is also a form of a check because you have to write it first, which is which is basically the first check mark in a, in a series of things. You first need to write code, which then gets checked. So it's a second dimension check which produces, in relative to the quality of cementation testing engine, an actionable report to do these decisions. Like either it can be zero semantics, which can be removed, or it's important enough to as a test for it. Okay, that's a basic function. Right. So let's, you covered a lot of ground there. And I think like for me, it's not the first time I've heard some of these terms and we've talked about it, but let's uh, try to make it uh, concrete for the audience. So the idea here is that uh, let's say that you have some code and this code maybe has like a comparison. A comparison might be greater than or equal to some value. And a really nice example. Let's go with um, greater than equals. Yeah. So A greater than equals, which you can actually decompose into a is greater than B or A is exactly equal B. So it's actually it's actually just a compressed form of the same statement. So you can decompose it into two. It's actually basically two branches and two comparisons and connected where they all operate. Mm -hmm. Right. Mutation test would do is it would try to simplify this code and let the test prove that you actually want greater than equals and not just greater or not just equals. Right. So the idea here is that you change the source code in some way and run the tests. And then if the test still, was it, they still pass, then something is unspecified. And that's basically the call to action. Right. If the test still pass, it gets reported as a flag and export developer would make. So either you prove me you're actually greater than equals or we actually use equals here. Yeah. So just to state it again in a, just a shorter term, that the idea here for the mutation testing is to verify it's almost like a, a check of the tests themselves, right? So if you can modify... I, I wouldn't say that because... You wouldn't say that? Really, so the, the first a disclaimer, this is my definition of mutation testing. Mm -hmm. I'm an also of mutation testing engine, and I've gone into my direction, and in my direction defining the terms and so on. Mm -hmm. For the reason I think I found a nice self-contained subset of reasoning. It must not be correct, but it's correct enough for me and the users of my tools. And testing the test is actually a really bad selling point, in my opinion, because it's not focusing on the actual action. Mm -hmm. It's testing for the absence of simplifications in your code that still passes the test. Because it could also be that the tests are totally valid and the developer just simply wrote more than the test asked for, which is typically the case. Mm. So it's not about adding tests at all. Mm -hmm. It's about proving, statistically proving, because it's not a 100% proof. So these tools are no silver bullet. They are statistically proving that there is no easy-to-reject simplification on your code. Mm. It's like first step. So when I, when I review code, I typically look for, I do multiple passes. The first pass is typically, I just look at the syntax, if it's nicely aligned and so on. So just so I can trust my pattern matching and right. I can I, I do code for such a long time, I do not actually read the syntax anymore. I, I read the code and it turns into some kind of object tree in my brain, whatever. <laughs> so, but uh, I need to make sure that the syntax is structured enough that I can trust this automated pattern matching into, into whatever semantics gets represented in my brain when I'm thinking about code. And then I need to think about, okay, so there is intention of the change, with a high, which is a high-level, business-level change. Let's assume we're implementing a feature or we're changing something. Then I need to make sure that this actually conforms to the business level while not doing anything else. And I would go through each line of code and think about, is this actually required? Can we just make it shorter? So I would constantly do this in my brain. And the mutation testing engine does the same, but much faster at a lower sophistication level. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't cheat. So humans have their presuppositions. So they know, oh, I've looked at this method 1,000 times. I, I can just skip it. And right. We all have this. And the, the best code reviewers I know have a 99% chance to not skip and then find something. But 
I'm not as disciplined. And this is basically the reason Mutant exists, because I was subjected to some very good code reviewers in my growing up as a developer, and we just derived these operators and so on. But let's, let's just focus on what the engine does. The engine just tries to verify. There is no simple to explain simplification on the code, which does not pass the test, and this property gets reported. And for each violation of the property, you get this call to action expressed as a diff, which mm -hmm. tells you, why not use this word? And you answer with, actually, I should, or, oh my God, there is something really important which I didn't specify. Because if it's not important enough to specify it, then transversely, it means it should have been removed from the code. Right. There's no, if you have a strictly semantic reducing mutation testing engine, there are other kinds. Mine is strictly semantic reducing. Then there is just these two outcomes. So either you can just use a simplified code if you agree it's simplified code, or it's very easy to agree that using an equals rather than a greater than equals is a simplification because the truth table is much smaller. Mm -hmm. And you shouldn't think about it as verifying that the tests are correct. They, you verify that there's no semantic extra in the code which is tested. And if you think about a typical GDD cycle, what are we supposed to do? We are supposed to do write a test, see it fail. Mm -hmm. When you see the test fail, what are we supposed to do? We should write just enough code to get the test passed, nothing more. Mm -hmm. But there is no constraint but human discipline to not add more in that step. Yeah. And mutation testing closes the CDD cycle because mutation testing can tell you, let's say to a specific confidence interval, it's not perfect, can tell you, is there something else added in that step? So is it fair to say that given your mutation testing engine, if something passes the mutation test, then the functionality of the program is exactly what's necessary? It's exactly what's specified. Okay, yeah, exactly what... There's like a one-to-one like -one mapping in the sense that... A really big semantic difference. So mm. because the mutation testing engine doesn't understand the intention, of, uh, the intention of your code ever, just looks for simplifications which still pass the test and reports these under the assumption that this simplification is something really interesting you could discover on a code review. Mm -hmm. I see. Because if you can remove something, let's say we have two calls. Let's say we have um, a message which does I.O., return value is ignored. First call is deliver confirmation message. Second call is charge your credit card. Mm -hmm. So if Mutant can take a deliver confirmation message call, then that's a really important information because right now you could argue, okay, so obviously it's not important because it has no test. No, actually there is a really important missing test. And what if the next developer just assumes the confirmation message is sent somewhere else and just takes it out? There's no test and it was just a side effect of something else, whatever, then regression. Mm -hmm. So what a passing mutation test proves, assuming the mutation testing engine can reach all your code, mm -hmm. which is complex. So let's, let's go for a stipulation. And there are no reported life mutations. It proves that your code minimally, so to a statistical confidence interval, because mutation testing cannot see everything, mm -hmm. only implements what your tests ask for. Mm. It's really important to not say it's correct because the, the engines know nothing about your intention. Right. It's, yeah. Okay. Maybe it's sort of um, it's like an NFR, not a functional requirement in a sense. Like it's the mutation. It's not going to tell you that your code is implemented correctly, right? No. So let's say it's a mutation testing engine. So if you if you had a mutation testing engine which would so. Let's say you only implemented the greater than equals function exactly for the for the math, uh, for the numbers which are in your tests. Mm -hmm. So you you say if a is one and b is two, then expect that, and you implement the function like that. The mutation testing engine cannot detect that it's actually meant to be for all numbers. Right. Not in Ruby. Let's say we are talking about dynamic languages here. So if you talk about languages with type systems, there it's much harder to cheat because then the type signatures actually force you to do a certain degree of so if you if you have a type parameter A and type parameter B and they both implement the um alt class, let's talk about Haskell in that case, they are implemented under the predicate for all. So you cannot make up new literals in the function implementation to do the static implementation I talk about. Mm -hmm. It's impossible in time. But is it, in a dynamic language, you could easily cheat the mutation testing engine and the test in case you would just hard code the inputs from the test. Mm -hmm. There's nothing I can do at this point with mutation testing. There are other, other options to do that. That would be property testing, which is another orthogonal way of test code. So property testing takes a, takes a generator and a predicate as an input mm -hmm. and runs generated values against that predicate and tries to turn that predicate into a direction it violates. Right. So it's a really rough explanation. So, um, what I'm saying here is it's all about 
finding the right set of tests which offset the inherent weaknesses of your development environment. Mm-hmm. So if you choose a dynamic language, there is nothing preventing you from doing for doing something really, 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 really bad in your code, right. but the tests. Mm-hmm. But the problem is because there is there are no other constraints. You need to make sure that your tests have a much higher quality. You can say quality, but actually your your code and tests are much more in line yeah. than type language. In a type language, you can you can if you if you if you go for one with a very sophisticated type system, the need for tests is lower. Right. Not, you cannot. Add, and replace um, uh, even if you use dependent type systems or yeah. like Idris or Acta, you cannot replace all tests, but you can replace lots of boring tests. Yeah, you sort of like in a dynamic language like Ruby or JavaScript, you have to shift a lot of responsibility onto your test suite because that's the only like way you have to verify functionality. The, the problem is that your test suite without mutation testing can never guarantee that there is there isn't any semantic in your code. Mm-hmm. Which couldn't be reduced. Right. Coverage. It's, it's impossible. Right. So let's go back to the example with uh, first line of code, send confirmation uh, message, second line of code, uh, charge credit card. So the problem here is if you only cover the charge credit card code pass with a test, it mm-hmm. is still 100% line coverage because the message sent the confirmation email actually ran. Yeah. So the only way to prove that this effect is actually covered in tests is to remove it, rerun the test. Yeah. So, and uh, now it becomes a little bit complex because you, in, in reality, I, I work on projects which on single thread execution would, would run tests for 60 minutes. So, and you say, hey, I have 10,000 lines of code and uh, I, for each line, there's one mutation and I need to run it 60 minutes. Obviously not. So it's a little bit more sophisticated. So you try to find the right set of tests to run mm-hmm. for a given mutation. And it goes a little bit more deeper. There are some Preconditions on mutation testing, like like a test suite which can be targeted to only execute a specific test, like a test suite which can be introspected, so there can be a map from okay, this test is probably responsible for that, mm-hmm. and a language which allows uh, which allows a little bit of call tracing, so you can subset this convention based selection a little bit more. So there is it's not it's not something you can just immediately put on a test suite and just assume it will produce good results. But the constraints of making a test mutation testing capable also lead to a test better test suite in itself because mm-hmm. you want a test which is unit test, then you want your unit test to be actually associatable with the unit. If you have a unit test where you cannot point to the class or public interface of a class which is being tested, then it's not a unit test. So right. it's actually adding a mutation testing workflow to an existing test suite typically improves the test suite for the people who do never run the mutation testing tool because the mutation testing tool forces certain invariants right. on the test suite. Right. So one of the things that I want to pull on a little bit here is when you introduced yourself, you mentioned, um, what was it? Um, sort of... I made it a language exorcist. No, the, okay. <laughs> that, I did really like that one, but it was something else. Something about the sort of the... Um, I think this is something you maybe mentioned way before which is like a metrics-driven development or some kind of like stuff. Yes, development, metrics-driven development. So, so what I want to follow up on is how did, you know, you, at some point in your career, you were writing code and you uncovered the use case for mutation testing. You figured out what it meant. You added, you know, you adopted mutation testing into your workflow. Origin story because I obviously didn't invent mutation testing. I didn't invent mutation testing for Ruby. Mm-hmm. I invented mutation testing to my liking for Ruby and to other people's liking, which originated in the fact that I once was a core contributor on DataMapper One and was a core contributor to contributor to the DataMapper Two project, which got disbanded and the idea went on to went ROM and DryRB, which are not related to at all. I'm just the founding father of the original idea but not the wow. actual implementation and all the evolution of the project had up to me. But what's interesting is that at the time we were planning DataMapper 2, Dan Cup, who was the lead maintainer for DataMapper 1, wrote a um, relational algebra engine called Axiom. And this relational algebra engine was tested with the only mutation testing tool available for Ruby at that time. It was called Hackle. And mm. I tried to contribute to that one and... I had my usability problems. I was constantly bitching in IRC. Ah, this hackle thing, blah, 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 blah. And everybody got a little bit pissed on me. I was like, I was really young, 19 years, whatever. So uh, you got a little bit ballsy at that time. 
And at some point, people were like, Marcus, shut up and write a better one. And I was like, hey, let's try that one. <laughs> I didn't know what I would, I said I would go into a 10-year ten, ten journey, but okay. <laughs> so at the same time, I was getting really good code reviews from Dan Kapp, who is one of the best code review machines of my life because he's he's really capable to not get clouded by his own judgment on the code. So he wouldn't just mm. skip over a line of because he saw it all the time. He would force his brain to re-evaluate it again. And he found lots of simplifications in my code. So two things happened. I was He was using Heckle for Axiom. I wanted to contribute to Axiom and its plugins. And uh, Heckle was mandatory. I had my usability problems with Heckle and I got reviewed by him. And eventually I found out that, that it's actually the same thing. So a large part of his flex would be covered by getting the code under test free of reported mutations because they, they intersected a lot. And eventually I ended up with working with them on the stand commercial team. And we could actually trace back several kinds of bugs in productions to flags which were missed in the code to missing mutations which have would have substituted these flags. Mm-hmm. So we, we could expect a catalog of mutations. And in the end, we actually could throw out lots of mutations because they, they didn't follow the strong reduction principle, uh-huh. uh, semantic reduction principle, and made the tool some kind of um, automated first-level code review. So in, over time, we could actually say, I don't need to look at this code as long as there are alive mutations because I would flex them anyway by hand. So it was like we could transform our, our workflow in a way that we say, okay, so we hook up mutant in, on CI, mm-hmm. we edit, we run it in incremental mode, so it only targets, automatically only targets code which was changed in the current iteration because a full run would over, overrun our timeout for the CI, and which was very low, like 60 seconds or so, because we mm-hmm. a story about how we change CI. And our policy could be, like, if mutant tries modifications which are equivalent to flags we would have placed on buggy code reviews which enter production in the past. Mm-hmm. Transversely, it means why even look at code with alive mutations? We just send it back to the author and say, hey, fix these mutations first. And this is how this tool actually entered our pipeline and was refined over time. So mm-hmm. each time we would end up with something when we had a bug in production and we trace it back to the bad decisions which have been made. In many cases, we could find a missing mutation operator and we would implement it in mutant and just run this entire thing again, verify that we do not fall into the same trap. And this is how this entire idea of trying to approach software engineering a little bit more scientifically, because you, you try to trace back your your decisions into into shared axioms on the development team. Mm-hmm. So let's say, so I drew the decision to single quotes and double quotes in Ruby endless debate, but if you share the axiom, always use the least powerful primitive which does the job. Let's say it's a universal axiom. You can you can agree to it. Mm-hmm. Like if you do not need to read the variable outside of your method, then use a local variable. If you need to read it outside of your method in the same class instance, you need to use an instance variable. It's just an order of power. And if you need to, which is a very bad idea, need to read and write it um, a level higher, you use a global variable or thread global and all this uh, yeah. all the stuff we have. So, or even worst case, you you write it to the database because it's even more global than your projects. Don't even give people these ideas, man. Don't even don't even talk about such crazy no, no, things. I, I throw that to saying. So yeah. I'm just I'm just saying. But the important thing is, you always use the least powerful primitive for every decision you do. It's one of the core principles. Mm-hmm. And then you can derive a lot of decisions from that and stop all discussion. Because if you argue double quotes with a single quotes, quite simple. If there are no S caps in it, use single quotes. Because if you use the other course and do not use escapes, it's the most it's a more powerful tool than you actually need at the syntax level. Mm-hmm. You can argue the same for which variables to use. You can argue the same for um, which data types to use. If there's a variable which can only have two states, it's probably a boolean. You do not encode it with an empty string or a string with a one. Right. So there's there's lots of engineering decisions which get and also discussion which get, which gets removed if you yeah. if you get your team on and teach your team on how to apply these axioms down the chain and up the chain. And in the in the end, we could even match up these axioms with mutant because what mutant does is it forces the composition of the least powerful primitive one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a method which calls two other methods is more complex than a method in, which calls one method. Going back to our example with the confirmation email. So it's just, let's say it's a self-consistent world of decision-making I discovered in while doing mutant, mm-hmm. which leads to 
turning software engineering into a little bit more determinism. So the obvious the utopia is that two developers with the same inputs, the same requirements, hmm. write bitwise identical, which will never end, but we can approximate it. <laughs> and I actually prefer to use a, even if it's flawed, we know it will never happen. But if you follow a decision-making tree and a theory of software development, which can approximate this, you have lots of positive side effects. I was working in remote teams for 10 years now mm -hmm. and also very early teams, which means that I cannot always tell people on how I want to do things on it, interject the, and watch them and uh, interrupt them and doing, and doing fine-grained engineering. But we ended up in A. But if we do the same decision tree, it's very likely that we end up with something which is so uncontroversial that a code just fits together. Yeah. So it's, it's more... It's more statistic argument to write code to reduce the likelihood of flags which are based on personal bias because I think there is no if you share this axiom and you swallow your own technical thought leader pride and just swallow the axiom like okay always use the least powerful primitives so much discussion goes away and if you get a buy-in from large parts of the teams their style doesn't exist anymore in large it's, right. it's, there's just no style yeah so there is no and it's great because style is just, in my opinion, it's this perspective I developed over writing Mutant and lots of other development tools, that style is just an excuse for I don't have any arguments anymore. Yeah, it's just subjective when it comes down to it, right? It's like, what is better than this or whatever? All right, let's take a quick break from today's episode so I can tell you about my other software delivery resources. First, I'm opening up my own software delivery dojo. My Dojo is a four-week program designed to level up your skills building, deploying, and operating production systems. Each week, participants will go through theoretical and practical exercises led by me designed to hone the skills needed for continuous delivery. I'm offering this Dojo at an amazingly affordable price to Small Batches listeners. Spots are limited, though, so apply now at softwaredeliverydojo.com. Well, if you want something free instead, I've got you there, too. Find links to my free email courses and ebooks on any show notes page. My courses and ebooks cover topics in much more depth than I can cover on the podcast. They're great on their own or even as a useful complement to topics covered on the show. Find all of my free resources at smallbatches.fm. All right, let's get back into the episode. So, from this core axiom, the least powerful primitive, you need to do the job. You can derive a lot of things. You can talk about which kind of SQL joint to use. You can talk about um, which kind of delimiter you use. You can talk about if you have two fields and if you have three instance variables and you need to initialize them and you do not know in which order and it makes semantically a difference and you alphabetize them. Just because there is no order doesn't mean you do not need to define one. So there's a default order which you always fall back to, which your team can agree to. So there's a lot of variance in code you can just remove Mm -hmm. And Mutant is one tool. So Mutant just fits into that thought model. So, But my entire view on development got a little bit shaped by, actually, it's not an art. It's an engineering discipline. Okay, we all agree on that. But we have some probably universal, universal ideas we should all agree on. I'm not stating that the one I just uttered here is the one we should agree on. But there is something in that area that if we were to constantly agree on, the entire world of software engineering would become more self-consistent. So, for example, mm -hmm. if you go look at the medical, they have the double-blind studies. So, if you do any kind of medical trial, it needs to be a double-blind study because they figured out if even the doctor knows what's going on, there is influence and so on and so forth. So, you need to have the participants of the study not knowing if they get the um, actual trial medicament or if they, if they get the placebo. And you need the doctors who threat them they do not need to know. And then you have a then you have a way to correctly evaluate the results. And I think that this is almost axiomatic. I think that it breaks down from other simple uh, principles in medicine. I do not know. I'm not a medical <laughs> professional. Right. But I would argue that there are principles like this in software engineering, which, if adapted by a large enough group, have big advantages. And the principle of least primitive, mm -hmm. of least powerful primitive, one of these. Well, and Mutant is an interest to verify that. Right. So... I recently had an interview and the guest brought up kind of the same thread that you're bringing up, which is that he mentioned that he had to transition earlier in his career where he, he called himself a software engineer, but he realized he was just a software developer because, you know, he was just, you know, writing code, kind of just guessing on what to do and not necessarily using any kind of what he called scientific rationalism 
to decide what to do next. Yes. And um, I hear kind of the same theme coming from you and your develop, like in your career progression. I'm very fortunate that I found uh, this team of Data Mapper One and led by Dan very early. So I was introduced to these ideas at age 21, and I was consumed by consulting for seven years, where I was staying with the same team for seven years for the same client, which is quite rare. And we had to eat all our mistakes, but could also refine our techniques significantly. Yeah, so which is great. Yeah, like adding mutation testing was one of these techniques to improve the like the metrics that you use to assess the quality of the software that you improve the checks. It's not mm -hmm. about so so improve the checks. It's just about creating a pipeline which deterministically produces value. Mutation testing is just one of these checks, and it shifted load from the most expensive resource, which is which is human time. Mm -hmm. Typically, salaries. So salaries are the, is the highest highest way because it costs the most. Unless you are running really data-heavy operations and AWS and all the stuff can cost a lot. But that's just from the pure engineering point. The human time costs typically most in software engineering. If you buy rockets, it's a little bit different. But um, if you do software engineering, it's the human time. And we want to spend our time on human-worthy problems. And verifying low-level properties of this code is irreducible relative to the tests is not human-worthy. Mm -hmm. It's an Another axiom. It's another axiom. You spend human time, or it's a rule, not maybe not an axiom, but we could axioms are a little bit more trans, uh, transient. And yeah. let's say it's another rule. Do not spend human time on something which is machine verifiable. <laughs> we do not run tests by hand. Right. Yeah, we do not run. We do not execute tests by hand. So we replace a five-driven development with writing some basic unit tests because we have to run them thousands of times after each change. So obviously we do not do this by hand anymore. So why shouldn't we go ahead and use techniques? which shift verification of low-level properties. Like, do we actually have a test which covers that this uh, bloody confirmation mail is sent mm -hmm. to, to the machine? That is what we want. Mm -hmm. So do I have a test? Or other way around, let's talk about another uh, classic example in Ruby. You have two kinds of hash accesses. You can either use the square bracket operator, which returns the default value in case it, uh, there is no key. Mm -hmm. And you have the hash dot fetch, which doesn't return the default value unless you tell it so. Mm -hmm. So you can actually pass up. So, and what Mutant will do is it will it will argue that okay. So, if I were to do a hash access and I know the key exists, then using a code pass which could return the hash default is actually not desired, right? Because I know the key, and there are lots of call sites where you actually know this should exist. And if you use a square bracket operator here, if you for some reason for some refactoring fail it. You will propagate the default of the default value, which is nil. You will be propagated somewhere, and the exception blows up 20 levels of the call stack away, and you have to painfully trace it down to whatever constant. So what Mutant will do, Mutant will force you to always use the fetch method without arguments, obviously, because with arguments is a totally different case. Also, Mutant knows that it's different. Mm -hmm. And it will force you to use a fetch method unless you can demonstrate that you actually have actually demonstrates that you will use the default value in one case. So, for example, if you pass a duplicate with parameters, I know it's action uh, controller parameters, but it has the same interface and roughly the same semantics, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> then it will, when you write a test for such a case, it's very likely that you need to handle the case that the parameter is not present. And mutant, right. while forcing you to go to fetch is... Uh, so it's like an expert-level code review. An expert-level code review will detect the case that you didn't test for that address line in the contact form to be absent. But yeah. it will tell you, if I change it to, fetch, to fetch, your test still pass. Do you really want it to pass? Or do you want to change it to fetch? It's your opinion. So either we change it to fetch, or you prove me it cannot be changed to fetch. Right. And that's what it's doing. So it's, I do not know how I ended up here. Sorry. So you need to guide me <laughs> So that, okay. One of the, the things that you keep uh, bringing up with regard to mutation testing is that playing the role of the automated code reviewer is something I can attest to also as someone who spent a lot of time doing code reviews on like code that I was familiar with, code that I wasn't familiar with, code written by new developers, senior developers, whatever. Exactly. You can, you can, that's the key. So you, you can use mutation testing pre-commit on your own code. You can use um, mutation testing on CI or if there is no CI policy to fermentation testing, no setup, whatever. You can run it locally during reviews and just ask yourself, 
is that worthy to teach the new developer that, or is he not at that point yet? But you can ask, you can remove lots of low-level questions of the code from your brain. And as, when you learn the properties of mutation tester, what kind of issues it reports or not, you don't need to check these low-level details anymore by yourself. Well, right. You save time because you can focus on the higher level. Did, did he use the wrong correct strings? Is he are the values correct? Does it fit in your uh, business perspective? So it's it's just a low-level test, mm. which which it shifts time, valuable time from the experienced reviewer to a machine. Right. So that was the point I was making that. I, as the reviewer, was doing these kind of things manually, which was, oh, I see, like, I'm reviewing this code. I see that you use square brackets instead of fetch. Why? You know, like, do you expect it to be here or not? Like, because I see this, now I have to have this discussion with you to verify the semantics of what is written. Is it correct? Is it not? Right? Exactly. The nice thing is, if you teach a new developer, you can, on the first time you see it by hand, you take, you teach, you tell him, hey, you use fetch and you explain the semantic difference and so on. But obviously, it takes time for human brains have inertia. He learns square brackets and he will come back with the square brackets, not of, not out of malicious. Right. But the, the nice thing is the, the mutation test has a constant bar. It doesn't have a bad time. So over time, you can just tell the people, hey, just get a pass, just get your code stage past the mutation tester. If you have any problem killing, then come to me. I help you. So. It's like a ladder mm-hmm. for the people. You can just put these tools on the, you just tell them, if you just try for five minutes, if not, but it, the mutation testing system will never forget to check for square brackets on this code again. And maybe you will forget in the next time because I just told you. So right. we are all fallible. It's like a minimum threshold of irreducibility, which can get constantly enforced. So you mentioned the term ladder, which I really like here. So for you, adopting mutation testing was one step on the ladder. What were the next steps on this ladder towards like a higher level? So I, got, I got tired of Ruby mm-hmm. and I got tired of Ruby out of many reasons. And one of the reasons was this problem of implementations which just map inputs to outputs without actually implementing, mm-hmm. which I mentioned before. Let's do something interesting. So let's go for... So you have a, you have a test which asks for, is two bigger than three? The answer is no. Is three bigger than two? The answer is yes. And if you were to write these two statements into the programming language, if, so if the left side of the in, uh, input is one and the right side is uh, the left side is three, two, whatever, so you just hard code this, this table, yeah. it passes the test. And there is nothing the mutation testing engine can do about it. Because the mutation testing engine would try to reduce the mapping from uh, three and two, the pairs three and two, it would reduce it one, would fail the test. Okay, I can't do anything. But if you have a typed language, you can do something about it, especially if you have a typed language which separates the concepts of greater than into a separate so-called, let's say, type class. You can say, mm-hmm. this method must be implemented for, for all A which support relational operators. So mm-hmm. because A is not a concrete type, it can be integer, double, float, uh, natural, whatever, you cannot just hardcode. Mm-hmm. You cannot hardcode such a table because there is no mm-hmm. literal Assuming there's literally actually there are some, but it's much harder to hard code the subset you choose to test with mm-hmm. and create an implementation which just fulfills the test examples, but not not the intention of filling, fulfilling all examples. And if you have a type system with um, universal quantification, so these for all types, then you can actually enforce these things. And this is where I went to. So I went to, in my opinion, most production level production-ready language in which with types, which is Haskell. So there are many other languages, and I probably I hope I do, uh, <laughs> get Don't worry. Them. Strong opinions are fine. I have them too. Haskell and to tr- and try to progress from from just example-based checks to universality. So I can prove things for all to the degree the type system allows me to. So then I started to to use a lot of property-based testing, which is prevalent in Haskell. There are uh, really good tools. Uh, first, I use QuickCheck. Now, I use Hedgehog. Then I started to realize that, okay, so the the writing executable code, which has lots of checks and is verified and so on, is a good idea, but I always have to drive the database. And the database mm. is typically all... So we all write a little bit of custom SQL. We write server-side function, all the stuff. And we all know you are not supposed to put the logic in the database. But nobody explains the reason, because the reason is it's hard to test. So I set out and wrote a test framework for SQL, which meant that uh, this test framework, there are existing test frameworks for SQL, but the ones I found suffer from a big problem. So let's say you test a relation. You test a big join against some fixture data, whatever. 
So the expectation actually has to manually repeat in the host language the entire result. So you join addresses against, you join tests, you join your shipments, which have an FK to customers, you join them against the customers and you want to have an output an output relation in your test to, uh, to match against. Then you painfully need to write, if you use a host language, Ruby, Haskell, you need to painfully write an, write an expectation. Mm-hmm. And in a big project with 20,000 lines of SQL, any kind of new column addition has a serious ripple effect on typing. You, you will not be able to, to maintain this kind of test suite. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I looked around and then I eventually, for other reasons, tried to uh, do some PostgreSQL extensions. And they have a really nice way of testing. They use golden tests. Golden tests are just recording a session, writing it to a file, like a, like a, P, a PSQL CLI session, writing it to a file, executing that same thing again as a test. So mm-hmm. there, is an, there is an SQL statement and an expected output. They record the expected output. And the test is just to run the statement again and compare it to the output. If there's any difference, the test fails. It's a golden test. And it works really well to test test SQL statements because you can you have your fixtures, you just load them to the database, you have this select with that complex join with lots of dependent, with lots of logic, domain-specific logic, discounts, whatever. And then you just record the expected outcome. You verify it once by hand as you need to, as you just develop the query. And every time you change the query, you will see in the diff presented by the golden testing tool against the expectation what actually changed. Because maybe you want to inc- include certain customers, maybe you want to exclude certain customers from your test set, obviously. And it's a really bad description of a golden test because I'm not used to explain it yet because I just recently learned it. So um, I have a nice nice thread on Twitter on that which explains it better because I'm, I'm used to type. I do not talk to <laughs> so, And I recently discovered that I had a blind eye on the database, and I knew I had a blind eye, so I couldn't put as much logic to the database, which I should have done, because in certain domains, it's much better to push down logic to the database. Because let's say, a typical case, you, you compute a total from a card. Uh-huh. It's quite stupid what we do. We pull lots of objects back and do some trivial aggregations to produce to produce a total. Right, to sum. Lots of traffic. If you have a bad ORM, you have N plus one problems, you have all this mapping overhead and all this stuff. But if you could just teach the database to produce a total, have the discount logic, and so on and so forth, you could just read the total from the database. The database would have one statement. The transaction context stays on for one statement. It's, it's much more efficient. So I actually transformed uh, over the seven years. It's one of the things I did in my consulting job. I transformed an e-commerce system called Spree to that pattern. And actually, we re- rebuilt the entire application. So the point here is, so, and obviously, you need to test these things. And when you need to t- want to have this server-side logic, you need to have these golden tests because mm-hmm. you cannot have write lots of expectations against intermediate relations. You also need to test. So if you have a real online shop with real discounts, which which are which are time-based in all the special cases, you need you cannot just like, test against the totals because you need to also test against the intermediary views. Right. Because uh, so easy to create a bug where you result in the same total for different reasons. So you need to also test intermediaries. But testing large intermediaries is really hard if you have to handwrite the expectation as a literal in, by hand. But with the golden test tool, you can just say, record the session, write it to the expectation file. So you have no literals to type at all. And next time I change the code, it would present me a diff. Okay, so for example, the total change from uh, 100 to 200 and in, in, in intermediate relations, there's this new column. Do you want to accept this change or is it unintended? And when I say yes, the file, the expectation golden sample file gets overwritten, mm-hmm. and I don't I have nothing to type. I just need to very carefully review the diff, which mm. is okay. So. so, is it safe to say that your kind of progression here is just exploring a lot of different ways for different kinds of testing? It seems like a lot no, of this. No, it's not about. It's not about testing. It's about improving the confidence in my development steps with the right tool for the for the for the area I'm working in. Right, that makes sense. The problem is that because of the absence of a really good type system in SQL, you can't have four alls, you can't... So PostgreSQL is a, is, is a really good RDBMS, but its type system is lacking. So I obviously need to backfill tests mm-hmm. in some way. Haskell has a good type system, so I do not write as many tests. Ruby has no type system, so I write a mutation testing engine. So this is the logic where I come from. Right. The logic is basically, I look at the weaknesses and the tools I use, and I try to fill the tool gap. Right. So this sort of kind of mirrors something in uh, like my own progression, which is like, yes, it's not 
the goal is not to write tests. The goal is to increase confidence that things are working as expected. Confidence with determinism. Yeah. Because confidence is an emotion, but determinism is a little bit more... Uh, it has a better technical meaning. We want to have, we want to run development process which deterministically adds value to the product. Well put. I think that's just where we should leave it because that's sort of the high level goal of all the engineering work we do is to do it deterministically. So, engineering. so I'm also an entrepreneur. So uh, then, if you talk to an entrepreneur, Marcus, it's different. So <laughs> yeah, but if you if you just focus on engineering, it's about run a process which increases determinism. Mm. Or we can also we can also uh, also put it inversely, which is avoid the importance of human discipline in your process because human discipline varies over time and will fail you. Well put. So, Marcus, thanks for coming on the show. It was so much fun to talk to you again. I haven't talked to you for a long time. I feel like we could probably talk for a long, long time. Yeah. But uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to me. It's the first time I actually had to an outside of my of my peer group I had the time to explain. So thank ah. you for giving me that opportunity. Oh, my pleasure. So is there anything you'd like to leave the audience with before we go? Yes. So uh, if you are on Ruby and you are interested in using an um, axiomatic determinism, improving whatever tool, um, Mutant used to be open source. I had to pull it from the open source. It's an interesting story, which doesn't fit here right now. If you want to try it out, find me on Twitter. There will be links. I'm happy to give demos. It's free to use for open source, but you have to sign up. I need to track who is using it just out of interest and just to make sure that I have a reason to to make a distinction from commercial usage. So um, feel free to hit me up and ask questions. I love questions. love to talk about this. So. Yeah, as you can tell. So for the listener, if you want to find out more about Mutant or the things that Marcus is working on, just go to smallbadge.fm. There'll be links to everything that Marcus has talked about if you want to check out the projects. And with that, we say adieu. You've just finished another episode of Small Batches, a podcast on building a high-performance software delivery organization. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, go to smallbatches.fm. I hope to have you back again for the next episode. So until then, happy shipping. Like the sound of Small Batches? This episode was produced by Podsworth Media. That's podsworth.com.